Science and Wisdom Live is a project of Jamyang London Buddhist Center, a non-profit organization. Please consider supporting us with a donation to help us keep our podcasts and videos free and ad-free. To support us now, please visit our website at scienceandwisdomlive.com. episode is an excerpt of one of our Science and Wisdom Dialogues. To listen to the full recording, please follow the link in the podcast description. What modern science has done is shown that the visible kind of reality we experience through our senses uh, is in fact pervaded by many invisible connections. In fact, Isaac Newton in the 17th century when modern science really began uh, through the scientific revolution of the 17th century, came up with a vision of universal interconnectedness in his theory of gravitation, that every particle of matter in the universe attracts every other particle of matter. The whole of nature is interrelated by invisible interconnections. And we now call those the gravitational field, which links together everything in the universe. In the 19th century, Michael Faraday um, first discovered or named the electrical and magnetic fields, and we now think of the whole universe as filled with the electromagnetic field through which light travels, and not just visible light, but invisible light, um, in the form of X-rays, cosmic rays, and so forth, Um, um, ultraviolet. Um, So lots of invisible forms of light. And then through quantum theory, we have the idea that there are matter fields underlying the very nature of matter, and the matter we experience as hard and impenetrable is actually made up of vibratory patterns of activity within fields. Um, So uh, modern science, even conventional modern science, doesn't give us a view of reality being what it seems to be to the senses. Um, There's a great deal of interconnectedness the, uh, in many ways, one could say that modern science is in the business, business of explaining the visible in terms of the invisible. Um, and the other great vision of modern science is that the universe is evolutionary, not just life on Earth, not just human culture, but the entire universe, starting with the Big Bang, um, has been expanding, cooling down and evolving so that more and more form, structure, order, pattern come into being in a creative universe. Now the big thing that's left out of this scientific picture is of course consciousness. And the um, for, for materialists that is the hard problem. It's called the hard problem because if you say that reality consists of unconscious matter and that's all there is, then how do you explain the fact that humans are conscious? Well you can't and that's why it's called the hard problem. So um, within science recently there's been a move uh, within philosophy of mind and indeed in neuroscience towards a more panpsychist view of nature saying that maybe there's some kind of consciousness even in electrons and atoms and that uh, consciousness in human brains emerges from less complex organized systems Uh, but consciousness pervades all all matter, all the universe. Now, 
that is an increasingly popular view, and uh, but it still sees consciousness as sort of emerging from uh, complexities of matter. And it doesn't explain how the universe came into being in the first place, uh, nor does it explain the creativity within the universe, nor does it explain the source of forms and matter uh, and energy. Thank you. And Geshe-la, if you'd like to start with the Buddhist view on the nature of reality. Yeah, we have cause and effect relationships, which actually prove that there is nothing that can exist from its own side, yeah? uh, as we refute in the ultimate nature of reality. And not only everything is, is in, in causal and effect relationships, it's kind of a process, so to say, but also there's an interdependence uh, among parts and a collection of parts. Yeah, so that means there, there is no, from its own side, existing kind of a table or a computer or whatsoever. It's made up out of parts, and those parts only function because there's a correlation between the parts. Yeah, so that's kind of the second level of interdependence. And then the third level of interdependence is, is kind of a quite more difficult one to be understood because it talks about things are just merely imputed by a mind. Yeah, what we call a table, what we call Tenzin Namdak, is just, you know, Tenzin Namdak is just merely an imputation based on body and mind, yeah, within the continuity of this particular person. So that's a kind of a three levels, so to say, of interdependence. Yeah, so that gives an idea what is reality. Then with regard to consciousness, how does it relate to consciousness? Also there we can see that, as it's uh, just been indicated that we, you know, what just been talked about the visible and the invisible, so to say, right? As Dr. Sheldrak indi indicated those, those two distinctions. So also in that regard, we have also kind of manifest phenomena, yeah, phenomena we can see like objects that appears to our eye consciousness, for example, yeah, this manifest. But there are also hidden phenomena in the sense they are hidden from sensory perception, meaning we cannot perceive them with our five sensory perceptions. The only way to get an idea of that reality is by the talk process. It means kind of uh, mental consciousness, as we define it, that is a conceptual consciousness in the form of thinking and reasoning, and using the language of epistemology, for example. We have individual streams of consciousness, and we have a collective form of what we call karma or activity with other beings who have also consciousness, right? So we classify, like take the earth as an example, human beings and animals possess a particular form of stream of consciousness. And that stream of consciousness is individual as such. It doesn't have a beginning and it doesn't have an end because every moment of consciousness can only be produced by consciousness itself. Yeah? A similar course should create the next moment. So then we come to a kind of infinite kind of recession or infinite kind of uh, moments where there's actually no beginning of the individual streams of consciousness. And as you know, also in Hindu philosophy, it talks about universal consciousness, for example, or you become one with, with God's consciousness, right? So we have similar aspects in Buddhism, but then it talks about the quality of something, that you get similar qualities as that universal aspect in your individual stream. So that's kind of a differentiation between becoming one with universal consciousness, we say we become a Buddha eventually. That means that we, we get the same qualities. It's not that our stream of consciousness merges with the stream of another consciousness. That's not the case. But we get the similar qualifications or the similar kind of aspects of consciousness. Right? We have all these probabilities in our mind. So that means if we get rid of destructive emotions, 
in the kind of process of purification and process of, of meditation on different aspects of the nature of reality, yeah, we can eliminate those kind of probabilities of, of, of the negative thoughts or the probabilities of destructive emotions as such. And then the only probabilities are left is kind of virtuous thoughts or virtuous state of mind, which actually produces kind of happiness, right? So that is kind of individual aspect of consciousness as well. And there is constant interaction. Yeah? Nothing is, is individual as such. That's kind of a process between consciousness, matter, and what we call non-associated composition factors. Yeah? So that's kind of, or you call it energy. So if you call it morphic resonance, or you call it the implicate order, yeah? as David Bohm suggests, there is something there that we cannot see that is the process or an intrinsic nature that is un, un, has to unfold and in order to come, become manifest, as David Bohm indicates. So that reality is probably there. We see that in your theory, we see that in David Bohm's theory, and we see that across the Buddhist forms of logical philosophy. When I first met David Bohm, he thought of this as a kind of one-way process. The implicate order folds out into the explicit order. And my criticism of that was it was like Platonism um, in Western philosophy, that there's an eternal realm of forms or ideas that gives rise to the world we live in. But there's no memory in that. And Platonism doesn't have a memory in nature. It has the idea of that everything is governed by an eternal invisible reality. The challenge for any theory like that is evolution, that if, if you had any eternal laws, everything would just repeat. And the whole evolutionary view of nature is that it's creative, that there's a appearance of new things in the course of evolution. And also there's a kind of memory, because what's happened before tends to be repeated, and there seem to be habits. But then in 1966, when Big Bang cosmology became orthodox, we got a view of the entire universe as evolving. And that means that at one time there were no zinc atoms or iron atoms or methane molecules or crystals of salt um, and certainly no forms of life at the time of the Big Bang. All these things have evolved in time. That the evolution involves a vast creative process. New things happened that weren't there before. The at some time the first eye appeared in an animal, the first feather on a bird, um, the first human appeared. Um, the first thoughts, uh, human thoughts, the first language appeared in humans. It wasn't human language before that. So in the course of time, there's an unfolding of new things. Now, for any philosophy that I know of, creativity is a problem, because most philosophers explain things in terms of what went before. And you can't explain a creative act in terms of what went before, unless you say it's not really creative, it had happened before, but it's been forgotten or it was in another universe. And traditional Hindu and Buddhist philosophy, uh, as I understand them, are cyclical, that they see repeating cycles um, uh, rather than a creative evolutionary process. And, you know, traditional Western philosophy, Platonic philosophy, didn't see creative evolutionary process either. Um, and so I think that this evolutionary vision that we have in science provi provides a challenge, challenge for all traditional philosophies. I'm, I don't know if you agree or not. Partly, <laughs> not completely. But uh, so, I mean, if we just look at, at life, if we just look at life on, on our planet, for example, as humans and, and animals and, and insects, right? 
So we say all those different, we classify as sentient beings, meaning beings that have a stream of consciousness. And as I indicated, we have individual streams of consciousness and collective aspects, yeah, that we experience similar things. So the stream of consciousness is there since the beginner's lifetime, and that means that since the beginner's lifetime, we have done all kinds of activities which leaves this kind of probabilities, so to say, or what we call potentials or karmic imprints, as we define it in, 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 in Buddhism. So these karmic imprints or, or probabilities within our continuities, that has many possibilities and even the possibility of creating something completely new that we haven't experienced before, but similar. Yeah, so that means it's not exactly the same, but a similar process can happen. What David Bohm says, the implicate and explicate order, is not that two different, complete different kind of realities. It's a constant flux. And what do you say? It re-injects in, in the implicate order. Uh, it's, it's, it's memory, so to say, or it's disintegratedness, right? So it's a flux of coming more manifest. And uh, because the flux of becoming more manifest or becoming more dormant, because there's different types, levels of reality, and the information that is stored, or the memory, if you want to call it, that is stored, is this disintegratedness of previous moments, right? And that is not classified as matter or as consciousness, hmm. but it interacts with those two, and it interacts with external conditions as well. So that gives an opportunity for us to develop or have this kind of creativity of new plants we haven't seen before or, or human beings developing in a similar, in a different way, though similar, but different outlook than, than, than previous uh, forms of, of human beings, for example. The idea of probabilities, of course, is standard in modern science. I mean, it's, it's interesting that this is part of the Buddhist approach because Probability is, is the very basis of quantum theory and indeed practically everything else in science. Um, in the 19th century, people thought that everything was predictable and completely fixed. And now uh, we recognize that through quantum theory, through chaos and complexity theory, that actually practically everything is probabilistic. I'd love to see a Buddhist university with Buddhist neuroscientists doing research on memory going beyond the materialist theory. Um, unfortunately, science is a kind of tyranny at the moment. In all countries, whatever people's philosophy, they will do the same kind of science. And, you know, but it would be wonderful to think that in, in Tibet or in Thailand or in Sri Lanka or in some Buddhist country that there, were, there would be a, a Buddhist university doing science in a completely different way. It's not that it will happen, it already happened, right? Because we have a lot of research being done between the correlation of consciousness and brain activity. Yeah? So Richard Davidson, for example, is one of the, probably the world leading experts in the field of, of, of the, the, you know, what affects does our consciousness in particular with regards to mental state of meditators, what does that, how does it influence the brain? Yeah. And also in the fields of, of, of for example, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, there's a lot of research being done between the correlation of consciousness, what we call consciousness, and the physical brain. Yeah, there's a correlation, but is that correlation causal? And so how does consciousness produce a particular brain activity or does brain activity produce a particular state of consciousness? There are this kind of research already going on in the monasteries itself, right? In, in, in my own monastery, you have a science department, which, you know, has a lot of kind of 
relationships with university in the West, and they do a lot of kind of research regarding, you know, brain activity as such. So it is developing, right? It just is, needs some more time and, and, and funding and, and effort. Yeah, so that's, uh, yeah. But yeah, it's still time because we've been given nine questions and we didn't even go to one of them. So <laughs> well, thank you. Well, delighted to hear it's happening in monasteries as well. I didn't know that. Very, very pleased to hear that.